Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Senate from Reality Podcast. I hope your day is treating you well. It is Tuesday. It is cold. The Sierras are very cold right now. So, you know, I, I left Chicago for a few weeks, left the humid, windy, rainy cold, and now we're here with the dry snow. So, I do prefer this. At least you can go outside and kind of enjoy some beauty. So can't really complain too much with that. But anyways, hope your day is going well, like I already said, I guess. And first off, I have to say, if you haven't watched The White Lotus Season 2 yet, you should definitely watch it. Also, I guess if you haven't watched Season 1 of The White Lotus, you should definitely watch it. Probably one of my favorite shows that I saw, oh God, almost two years ago now. I remember first sitting down and watching The White Lotus and just going, oh my God, this is fascinating. Just a really good cultural critique about excess and elites and how they treat like locals at hotels. And it's just it's a really good class commentary. The new season is even darker. It's more about lust and impulses and desire. And it's really good. It's filmed in Sicily. I The ending blew my mind. I saw that on Sunday night and completely blew my mind. So I definitely recommend watching it. You're going to leave the finale of season two feeling empty. <laughs> so that's always nice to feel empty. But if you're going to feel you know empty about something, at least feel empty about it at the ending of a good show. So anyways, I don't know if you guys also saw that our friend Marjorie Taylor Greene was speaking at some like college Republicans in New York. I think it was in New York. I, I read the story a few days ago. But basically she said something to the effect of, if Steve Bannon and I were the ones like leading the January 6th thing, we would have won. Not like a great thing to say, considering like a few people died and, you know, they were rubbing, smearing poop on the Capitol and, you know, doing all this lovely stuff that you know shouldn't be happening in the Capitol building. But according to her, if her and Steve Bannon were more involved, they would have won. I don't know. Does that mean they would have been successful in keeping Trump in power and overthrowing our democracy? Does that mean maybe some senators or Congress people would have died and Mike Pence would have felt pressured to certify the or not certify the election for Biden? Does it mean that they would have won their lawsuits? I don't know, but it's dangerous. And she is just awful. And, you know, the more I like read, like I was talking about that book I'm reading, Spain in Our Hearts, about the Spanish Civil War, and you hear about other books like Cruelty is the Reason and stuff. It, it just seems like cruelty is is seriously the goal of these people, these like far right nuts like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Trump and to some extent even Elon Musk at this point. It just seems like they are just going down a road to violence, cruelty and authoritarianism. And it's definitely not a country I would like to live in, especially knowing just some of the things that these people say, you know, and it worries me because this is a lady who shouldn't even be near the Capitol shouldn't even be a congresswoman. She has no no reason to be there. She is not qualified, and she's repugnant and dangerous. And she won going away in her reelection. You know what? About a month ago now, she is in a red district and just killed it. And people love what they're getting from her. She's a rock star now. She used to be kicked out of her committees and was seen as just atrocious. And slowly that Overton window has kept going, and now she's kind of a, a rock star, a celebrity in the party. While you have like Mitt Romney and. Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger getting death threats and getting criticized by these nuts. Like, everything just doesn't make sense anymore. I wish the days when debates were about, like, what percent of taxes should the, American, should the average American pay? Or 
what should our foreign policies look like? How much money should we spend on the military? I, I really cherished those days because now it's debates about whether an election should be overturned using force. <laughs> oh, how the good times have ended. But I guess we just can't have nice things anymore. It's been a thing I've said probably too frequently on this podcast. But yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, she, she just seems to be growing in strength and popularity and it, it isn't something that makes you feel good because you see the growing anti-Semitism as well. And she's obviously barely dog whistled, kind of dog whistled, or more just blatantly said things. And yeah, so apparently if her and Steve Bannon were more involved in the January 6th riots or whatever you want to call them, then she would have won. And I'm glad they didn't win because I don't really want to be involved in anything that she is victorious in. Something on a lighter note before we get into Elon Musk's dark side that's coming out and we talk about Twitter raising its character limit and democracy backsliding in Mexico. I did want to just talk about how nuclear fusion is like there's some I guess let me step back. There are some major breakthroughs on I think it was Monday involving nuclear fusion. So as you guys are definitely aware, I am not a scientist. I'm an idiot with some of this stuff. But I can at least discuss the basics here. And I think it was just something worth noting. The Economist uh, has an article from this morning, I guess it was. Or no, yesterday morning, sorry. And it says in quotes here, Scientists in America reportedly achieved a net energy gain from nuclear fusion. Fusion reactions, including those that fire the sun, can generate huge amounts of energy without emitting either carbon or long-lasting radioactive waste. Until now, artificial fusion reactions have consumed more energy than they produced. America's Energy Department said it, it would provide more details of this major breakthrough on Tuesday. So it's really interesting to me because this is important and it's a really a positive one for the future of renewable energy and energy production in ways that can almost provide endless energy if done correctly. And until now, I've heard constant criticism of this form of energy, and rightfully so, just because... Obviously, if it's using more energy than it's releasing, what's the point of actually using this? And if this report is going to become standard, and it isn't just some rare event that they saw happen, this could really bring close to endless and infinite energy production to Earth, which would be obviously a huge step forward as resource scarcity is constantly growing. And from my understanding, scientists have been trying to do this for decades to basically replicate the nuclear fusion that powers our sun, basically. And another article notes here in quotes that nuclear fusion happens when two or more atoms are fused into a larger one. This is a process that generates a, ma a massive amount of energy as heat. And unlike nuclear fission that powers electricity all over the world, it doesn't generate radioactive waste. So huge breakthrough. I am not enough of an expert to talk more about this, but as we're having all these debates about what we want from renewable energy and the politics of it and the divisive rhetoric about it, I think this is a huge breakthrough and maybe could uh, help stop some of the arguments out there that are against these forms of resources because they aren't infinite and they're hard to do and blah, blah, blah. So we're going to have to keep watching that, but I think it's definitely good news. Anyways, I want to I mention something interesting moving forward. According to The Hill, and this was also on Monday or maybe it was Sunday night, Twitter CEO Elon Musk suggested the platform will dramatically increase character limits on tweets, going from, and this is crazy, 280 characters to 4,000. Yeah, you heard me correctly. It's not like going, you know, 280 to like 500 or 1,000. It's 4,000 now. 
And that's a crazy amount. It's a huge jump, and it makes no sense, but nothing makes sense since Musk has taken over Twitter, so whatever. But I don't... I don't understand why you would do this because this literally would allow users to write tweets that are basically 14 times longer than the current limit. And I personally do not like this because I guess one of the things I've actually liked about Twitter is that it forces people to be brief and articulate with their thoughts. I've had numerous times where I'm writing a tweet back when I was more vocal on there and I would you know, go over the limit and run out of things to say and I'd have to kind of go backwards and really say what's necessary, cut out the extra fat, and really be articulate with my point. And it's actually helped me, in a sense, really cut down all the extra filler words and all that jazz. And now that we're going to 4,000 characters, that completely throws all of that to the wind. And this, I guess, would kind of make Twitter more of just a blog where people can rant. And it would probably make it more of a cesspool, in my opinion, because... Yeah, you could obviously do Twitter threads and all this stuff, but it would just change the entire dynamic of Twitter. And look, like I thought Elon Musk bought Twitter because he wanted to fight for blah, 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 free speech. But the more he's there, it just seems like he wants to just bring this entire thing down. Because other than that, I don't know what the hell is on his mind with this. But I don't like it. It sounds like it's happening, but we'll just have to keep watching on that one. Staying, though, for a little bit now on the lovely topic of Elon Musk and I guess kind of Twitter, but more just Elon Musk. Apparently over the weekend, a crowd basically booed Elon when he showed up on stage with Dave Chappelle at a show in San Francisco. And it was kind of funny. Like he goes up there, the crowd, like you, you hear a little bit of clapping, but it's mainly just boos. And then Dave Chappelle makes a joke to the effect of these must be some of the people you fired. And I mean, when you think about it, maybe that's the case because look, it's in San Francisco tech place. Twitter is is headquartered there, I believe. Those are not the people that have a sense of humor. They also can afford a Dave Chappelle show in downtown San Francisco. Maybe that is, maybe they are former Twitter employees. But anyways, it was just kind of funny because I bet that was not what Elon Musk, who clearly is a narcissist in some ways, I doubt he was feeling good about that. And the Washington Post notes here in quotes, judging by the loud and sustained boos from the pack crowd, the tech billionaire does not have a future in comedy. And I thought that was pretty good. I don't know what Chappelle was thinking. Like, I don't know if anyone would have thought that would have worked out well for anyone involved. But Musk ended up staying up there and tried to make light of it. The booing got louder and louder. And yeah, I I saw also that this vi- the original video that came out was taken down off Twitter as well. So I don't know if that was on purpose. Elon didn't want people to see it. But anyways, Musk's full transformation has been completed, I guess you could say. And moving on a little bit, it, I think this just highlights how mainstream culture and the majority of people in the United States are kind of turning on Musk. Now, obviously, I don't know if San Francisco at a comedy show is really a, is really a good indicator of what the American people think completely, but he has gone pretty right wing at this point, pretty reactionary. And what I would say is watch out Dark Brandon because it looks like Dark Elon is finally here. And who knows if that's a good thing, but it's here to stay. And I'll get into details on why I think he's reached his final form as kind of an alt-right troll. He seems, first off, that he outdoes himself at almost every moment. And basically every time I see a news story about him, 
he's gone further down some rabbit hole or has become more of a controversial asshole, I guess you could say, excuse my language. And on Sunday, Musk really outdid himself. It wasn't really funny. It was really outdated, but, you know, it was interesting. He tweeted, my pronouns are prosecute slash Fauci. You know, instead of like, my pronouns are they, them, or whatever, he, him, or whatever it is. And first off, like, the prosecute Fauci thing is, like, really outdated at this point. Like, Fauci's pretty much out of here. Like, come on, man. This was, like, a year ago people were talking about this. Like, get with the program. Like, it just seems really forced at this point. And at first glance, it also just seems like a guy who's just trying too hard to be a Twitter troll. But then you also unpack it, and it really does actually just tell you everything you need to know about Musk. Honestly, I really do think that. He's just another person who's kind of fallen into the cesspool of the culture war. And the tweet covers so many different layers to that because, for example, first, it mocks the whole pronouns, transgender thing. Second, it attacks public health officials and goes along with the super negative attention on Fauci, even though, like I said, he's really late to the party here. And lastly, it's just a huge whistle to all the far-right trolls on Twitter who are probably the only people that love him now. (laughs) And basically this tweet just shows me who his audience is and who he is not trying to appeal to. And I... I, I didn't think this was funny. It just seemed like a pretty lame dad joke. And, of course, you know, he, he had to make a mockery of the trans community, which is super big on the right. It's like, dude, just, just, just calm down. But I guess to me, if his other actions hadn't already confirmed it, this guy is definitely a far-right activist. He, he seems like many of these like kind of angry, disillusioned liberals who have kind of made a metamorphosis into right-wing grifting, right? I always think of the Tulsi Gabbards, the Carrie Lakes, the Glenn Greenwalds, etc., etc., but he's just the next step or the next phase of that. And it, it always kind of fascinates me because Musk claims to be a centrist, that enlightened centrist type of stuff, but I totally call BS on that because I'm someone who identifies as kind of a right-leaning independent or a radical centrist or someone that just kind of believes in balance. And he is nowhere near me on this stuff. And when someone says that they either aren't political or they're a centrist, you should sometimes look at who is supporting them and who they are agreeing with and who is retweeting them. Like, would a centrist tweet someone and have Marjorie Taylor Greene retweet you? I would say no, but that's what happened with this prosecute Fauci tweet he did was Marjorie Taylor Greene was one of the ones who said, I agree with your pronouns, Mr. Musk. And I don't know if uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene would be retweeting a centrist. What about on Fox News? Now it's like Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson and Jesse Waters. They're now the ones that support him. So if you want to call him a centrist, look at who is now retweeting and repeating his rhetoric. And they're not centrists. They are not centrists whatsoever. So we will have to see on that one. (laughs) Let me know if you've seen him do anything more centrist-leaning, but I don't see it. And... Charlie Warzel has a good article in The Atlantic that kind of goes into this as well. He writes, and it's a little bit long, so bear with me, Musk, for his part, has maintained that he is a centrist, that his politics have remained unchanged, and that it is the Democratic Party that has veered dramatically leftward. Musk's logic that wayward leftism has given a lifelong moderate liberal no choice but to support right-wing causes is a common trope among far-right activists. It's been employed by many in the so-called intellectual dark web and influencers, such as Dave Rubin, Joe Rogan, Glenn Greenwald, and others. 
The argument stretches far back in American politics. Even the neoconservative movement in the United States was originated by liberals who grew disillusioned with the Democratic Party, especially in relation to the left's Vietnam protests. And, and ending the, 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 that was the section. I think it is an interesting point because I used to kind of like the intellectual dark web until kind of the veil was pulled off during COVID. And, you know, you have Sam Harris being pretty much ostracized by them because he basically said, like, you guys need to stop lying. You need to stop being anti-vax without even knowing what you're doing. And you need to stop just putting out all these conspiracies that we don't have time to keep putting out. And he gets kicked out. And you have these people like, yeah, Dave Rubin and Glenn Greenwald, who have always kind of been more civil libertarians, I think. And I, I don't know if Warzel is completely fair there. But at the same point, it's true that, like, they claim to be the ones who are too now enlightened to be part of the party, but maybe it's just like they have changed, right? And I think it's a good point about how people change their positions or even public views on issues, but I actually don't know if Musk is like those other people because in a sense, I think he's more like Trump than David Rubin or Tulsi Gabbard or whatever. I don't think he really stands for anything. He is just selfish and is focused on his personal interests instead. It's not what a party can do for him or what he can bring to a party. It's like, what can say in these views do for my own brand? And that's a lot like Trump himself, right? And I think both like Trump and Elon, their views are fluid. They're all over the place. They both also have just identified a more active and supportive audience on the right than on the left. And I think that's what happens. And I also think he just enjoys trolling on Twitter and enjoys engaging with right-wing trolls. I think to him, it's kind of a game. The problem is like, even though he seems to kind of just be, I don't give a you know, shit about this type of attitude, he is becoming somewhat of an activist, right? Because he is supporting these views that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene also agree with. And I think this activism is somewhat a similar nihilism that I keep ranting about and we see in other figures right now. And I guess the cruelty and carelessness and the lack of emotional intelligence are, are all just kind of part of what Elon's doing and others, but I think it's hard to know what he believes in. And I'm kind of sick of him at this point because I, I think what he did with Tesla and SpaceX and some other brands were fine, but he's kind of gone out of his lane and it's just getting annoying. And I should, I should also just add that Musk confuses me in a different way as well because I'm truly, I'm truly, truly curious why he blew up his brand, his image, his legacy. He used to be a relatively popular guy with the American public, and there was kind of a favorable opinion of him. Tesla was also viewed quite positively. Like, it was a cool symbol to be driving a Tesla. But at least from some of the polls I've seen recently and some articles I've read, it seems like things have changed, and he's being disliked by a larger and larger majority of the American population. And of course he is, because he's just become kind of this toxic guy who a lot of people think is disingenuous. And I was reading this morning that the American public has now a generally unfavorable opinion towards the car company now as well. And I know he probably doesn't care. He's rich as F. But honestly, man, I remember reading that biography about you back, I think it was in 2017. And it was before you became this political troll. And it was fascinating. So maybe tame this stuff down, get back to what you're good at, but I think it's probably too late for that. It, it probably is too late for that. And he's obviously on this mission to do whatever he's doing to Twitter and to everything. And so maybe he's just, uh, maybe he'll go away eventually, but these type of people don't seem to. Moving on, I want to get out of the United States and out of the 
chaotic culture war stuff and move to the land below us, Mexico, south of the border. In a little segment, we're going to call Adios to Democracy. And we haven't talked about Mexico in a long time. And since I last covered it back on the old podcast, I think it was in 2020, a lot has changed and escalated. And, you know, it's between political issues, the pandemic, protests, liberal backsliding, etc. And obviously inflation and the culture war, I guess, I guess we're still talking about that a little bit, really have just not helped any of this at all. And before I give some background on all of this, it does look like things are not going particularly well in Mexico if you are a fan of small L liberalism. If you like autocracy and radicalism and reactionary politics, then maybe you you might just like what's happening. But I, I personally don't. And The Economist has an article out from Monday that discusses in quotes here, a controversial electoral reform package, which in mid-November sparked the biggest protest since Andres Manuel López Obrador became president in 2018, will this week be debated and perhaps passed by Mexico's Senate. The reform, which the lower house rushed through last week, would undermine Mexico's electoral authority, which in the Spanish uh, letters is INE, cutting its budget and weakening its ability to punish breaches of electoral law. Rules on campaigning and propaganda by public servants would also be loosened. So fun stuff, right? And from my understanding, Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, who they call AMLO, and I'm going to call him AMLO just for short. I sort of think of AMLO as kind of a left-wing version of Trump. Similar, like, conspiratorial thinking about elites, doesn't really believe in elections, but obviously has very leftist populist politics. And AMLO is at the forefront of these reforms that would definitely erode democratic institutions in Mexico. And basically, without any evidence, he has alleged that he lost two elections in 2006 and 2012. And it's true. He lost both of these by very slim margins. And basically, he wants to get rid of this electoral authority, the INE, because he blames it for his defeats and he blames it for endorsing and certifying the results of the other candidates. And now, of course, from my understanding, he lost these two fair and square and this electoral board is fairly bipartisan. But now AMLO wants to get rid of this and kind of erode electoral independence and make the body more able to be rife for corruption, right? And I'll get into why this is dangerous, but just to start, this INE board that he wants to reform was actually important in getting rid of authoritarianism in the 20th century, and it actually helped usher in a more democratic system that was fair. And so it's troubling if he wants to get rid of this. But anyways, while this backslide in Mexico is troubling, it kind of seems like this is one of those frogs in boiling water situations because back in 2020, for example, I did an episode on the old podcast, uh, Catching Up as we called it, that discuss how over 650 of Mexico's most prominent academics and intellectuals and people in the media basically published an open letter stating, in quotes, freedom of expression was under siege in Mexico, and with that, democracy is threatened. And at that time, you just saw AMLO being more hostile towards the press, more radical, more willing to work outside of democracy's restraints. And it was just another step at the time in this spiral into authoritarian darkness. And it's really no surprise because AMLO really has been at war with intelligence and free speech and, you know, media independence for years. And I guess since I did that catching up episode, things are just getting significantly worse. 
Going back a bit, though, in 2018, he became the unlikely frontrunner in the presidential elections, and he won. And basically, he vowed a very steep pledge that he's failed to do, but he vowed to rule for people of all social classes, all sexual orientations, and all points of view. And, you know, he, he became popular... And, and, and this was when there was kind of a populist wave going through the world, right? But he was also popular because, let's be honest, Me- Mexico has awful inequality, decades of political corruption, violence, poverty, etc. And people were fed up with the system. And the issue, though, is that I, I, I kind of feel like Amlo's in that kind of Hugo Chavez type of mold where he's hesitant. I, 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 guess, I guess he's what I would call democratic and capitalist skeptic, and he doesn't really trust the international order. And so he would rather nationalize industries and be isolationists and pretty much backtrack on foreign deals with places like the United States. Now, he hasn't fully done that, but that's, I think, what he would like to do in a perfect world. And he just doesn't trust Western powers. And he just doesn't believe in kind of the liberal global order. And since he's been in power, like I kind of alluded to already, there have been constant attacks on journalists. Mexico has seen just stagnant economic growth, which... Inflation hasn't helped. COVID hasn't helped. The country did poorly with COVID. They downplayed it like a lot of other populists do. It's a, it's an interesting side note to say that if you look at the countries that have handled COVID the worst, all of them were led by kind of a populist, whether it was far left or right. But you, if you kind of just drop dots around all the populist countries in the world, they all at the time, or with reactionary politicians, they all seem to do the worst. I mean, Brazil, the United States, the UK, Hungary, India. Russia, just to name a few. Mexico, right? It, it, it's a pretty through line. But anyways, he, while the economy has not been doing great, COVID was handled poorly, and his popularity has gone down, he's focused on projects that are kind of designed to increase equity in the country, to help the poor, to do what he talked about was making Mexico good for everyone, which I think is a, is a, a plaudible goal at the end of the day, but he hasn't really particularly done it. And I guess a lot of these projects that he's worked on to help the poor have just been poorly designed. And for example, over the last year, he's focused on policies to develop southern Mexico, which is far from the U.S. border and far from kind of the economic and industrial parts of of Mexico. And it's underdeveloped. Um, It has a lot more rural indigenous populations, and it's been kind of neglected. And hey, it's good if he wants to focus on that. But he hasn't focused on some of the reasons. He's just focused on trying to like put money into it. And yeah, he wants to build roads and blah, blah, blah. But he hasn't focused on education or internal issues that would actually make development more possible. He's also had these long-term fights with the development of a new airport in Mexico City that was already in construction. And he wants to renege on a lot of trade agreements with the United States. And of course, the United States has a lot of interests in the region. And of course, I don't think it's any secret that if Mexico was in better economic shape, it would help the immigration crises that we see at the border. And so I think we, we, we've really tried to work with Mexico on this, but he's been difficult. And now I, I should add that I have talked to many Mexicans that do voice support for his policies and think that he's fighting against the elites and those that have been bad for Mexico. And he has changed things. He's kind of, he's kind of, you know, mixed the pot up a little bit and all the like crap has come to the surface basically. But In my eyes, it seems like he's going down this similar illiberal populism that is really bad. And what I would say is that it seems like democracy in Mexico has been waiting for years now. 
Back in 2019, the Council on Foreign Relations said that AMLO is basically dismantling democracy. And from as far as I can tell, AMLO has been following that kind of wannabe autocratic playbook. The Council on Foreign Relations does note that he has often chosen to work outside the formal legislative process. That's always a red flag. He has done public referendums. He's done sampling small and politically skewed groups to basically get agricultural policies set to boost pensions, authorize infrastructure projects, and create scholarships. So they're passing policies that are usually popular with a minority, and they're skewing data to do it, so that's never good. He's also stacked the courts, always another red flag. And he is taking on independence within the government, slashing the budgets of the Electoral Institute, the Transparency Agency, and many sectoral regulators. He's also taken on what he calls the deep state, so another American export. And he also involves imperialistic international organizations in a lot of his speeches and doesn't like NGOs or international aid. So again, like he does seem a lot like Hugo Chavez to me. That's really what I see here. But anyways, kind of going back full circle here, that puts us to this recent attempt in November to reform the electoral INE. And simply put, AMLO wants to get rid of the system that he believes lost him his previous elections. And the Washington Post has a good article on it. And it writes here in quotes, AMLO nevertheless portrays the panel, known by its Spanish-language initials, INE, as biased, elitist, and wasteful of taxpayer money. The president wants a new system whereby voters choose a seven-member panel from 60 candidates of whom the president, Congress, and the Supreme Court would each pick out about 20. They would serve for six years, the length of a presidential term in Mexico. The susceptibility to politicization of such a panel is obvious. In contrast, the current INE consists of 11 members selected for their expertise by a nominating committee, then confirmed by a two-thirds vote for Congress. Then they serve for nine years each. And, I mean, God, other than the fact that the INE actually seems to work, polls that I've seen do show that it's popular with the Mexican people, or at least they trust it. And so, like, I mean, from just that, like what I read there, having the... <laughs> Having the president, Congress, and the Supreme Court pick 20, having them serve for a presidential term and not more, it just seems like it's rife for corruption, right? I prefer 11 members selected for their expertise, and they need two-thirds of Congress, and they serve nine years instead of six. That makes more sense to me. And I guess what the greater fear here is that it looks like AMLO is trying to find a way to make it so that he can stay in power after his term is over in 2024, because that's when he's done. And... There's an increasing number of Mexicans that are worried that he's trying to perpetuate his party's dominance, even after the term ends. And basically, it seems like he wants to mimic. Earlier, I talked about the kind of authoritarian system that prevailed prior to democracy really taking hold in Mexico. And it sounds like he wants to mimic that authoritarian system that was under the Institutional Revolutionary Party during the majority of the late 20th century. He has actually praised them and seems intent with their styles of governance and it sounds like this board, the INE, was one of the only apparatuses that was put into the system that actually helped to move Mexico away from this institutional revolutionary party. So obviously it's not good that they're backtracking. Now, what I should add too is that it's unlikely that AMLO is actually going to get two-thirds of Congress's vote to actually reform the Constitution and add this. But of course, there's another way to do it. What he could do is he could basically get a simple majority to do these reforms through legislation, right? Because he, if he can get it through the Senate with a simple majority, that would also be easier. And the U.S. has 
I mean, like I've kind of already alluded to, is the U.S. has huge stakes in Mexico's affairs. And if this were to happen, it would not be good for us or Mexico, in my opinion. And especially when, like, the majority of the Mexican population seems to actually trust this system and the INE, it is not good to see what AMLO is doing. And there were warnings when he first came into power that he would try to do something like this. And now it just seems like that's coming to fruition. So nothing really surprises me anymore. But here we are. Another country, it seems like democracy is kind of outgrowing its welcome. One can hope that I'm wrong. Hopefully there's sensible politicians in the country, but things just do not seem good right now. And it just kind of sucks that when you do have someone who wants to fight for equity and everyone in Mexico, they also usually have other motives of like maintaining power and don't believe in like institutions. So... (laughs) Yeah, I don't have a lot of confidence in what's happening there, but I don't have a lot of confidence in what's happening in most places. But anyways, I want you guys to have a great rest of your day. Again, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Podbean, whatever else I missed. Anyways, I'll be back with another episode. And um, yeah, just stay safe and sane, and we will talk soon. Adios. Adios.